Right. Hello. Cool. So, who knows what this is? Hooray, it's the double diamond, classic representation of the design process. We've got our four classic phases. We've got our discover, define, develop, deliver. Tight a little how might we in the middle there. Uh, how about this? We all good? Yes, design thinking. But this is completely different though, right? Because it's like it's five. It's five steps, not four. And it has extra special hexagons which I hate, but they do pop up a lot. Okay, last one, slight challenge. What's this? It's a bell curve, that's correct. Some of you will also know this as normal distribution, not really a design thing, uh, but a foundation concept for data people, you know, like with the statistics and the numbers and, and that kind of thing. Right, so, hi. My name is Zoe. Uh, I run a training company which is focused on UX and accessibility based in Canberra, mostly working with governments. And I am also a research student looking at design capability in government. Uh, now, we all know by now that we are on Cadigal country. I'm actually from Ngunnawal country down in Canberra. They're both really beautiful places. Uh, and they're both places that have been under continual custodianship of First Australians, which is something that I, as a not First Australian, am really grateful for, and I, I hope you are too. So, this is a talk about history. Some of that history is terrible. Uh, there is a lot of racism in this talk, like a, a, a lot towards the end. There will also be a blank slide where I will be talking about the Holocaust. Uh, you will have a five-minute warning before that happens. I invite anyone to leave if they want, but also things like just putting your headphones in, like, that's not a problem. That's, that's a cool thing to do if that's what suits you. Uh, just for clarity, I've actually used AI to extend a couple of backgrounds in some pictures, uh, and I have intentionally not included any photos of anyone who's been affected by the things discussed in this talk, because they can't consent to that. I haven't explicitly mentioned Australia, but I will take any question you have about how this applies to our history in Australia, especially in relation to Indigenous Australia. Uh, you are going to get really sick of photos of white men. There's, there's so many. Okay. Right. This is the full scope of the history we'll cover. It's 1800s to present day. The white bars are World War I and II. One catch, it will not be in chronological order. So, we're going to do a quick prologue in the 2000s, talk briefly about the history of IQ tests. It's relevant, I promise. Uh, next up, period between World War II to 1973 to talk about the creative problem solving or CPS movement. And then, in a bold U-turn, we're going right back to 1800. We're going to bounce through up to 1915 through to the beginning of World War II to the history of statistics and so-called scientific racism. Now, you might be thinking that's pretty convoluted. It is, uh, but history is convoluted. So I've simplified a lot and it's still pretty messy, but to be clear, what you're hearing today is not 
a comprehensive history. It is a coherent history. I have cut out main characters. I have cut out many, many plot arcs, but hopefully it will still be useful. Right. So there's a, an old joke, and a lot of you will know this. You got two young fish they're hanging out in the lake. An old fish swims past, and he goes, morning, boys, how's the water? Swims away. And one of the young fish turns to the other fish when he's gone. He goes, what's water? The thing that unites the methods that we use as designers, double diamond design thinking, uh, how might we statements, data analysis sometimes, they are all presented and we present them as existing outside of culture and outside of history. They're just abstract. They're not. Let's uh, have a look at the water. Cool. So, assuming that a method can be a cultural is itself a cultural assumption. The idea that a process can be decontextualized is contextual. The idea that a process exists outside of history is shaped by history. That's why we're going to look at history. Prologue time. So, British Design Council released the Double Diamond in 2005. There's a historical note on the website. It says, of course, design, uh, kite-shaped design process models have been referenced as far back as the 60s. Have they? So, the Director of Design, at the time this came out, he said, an engineer at IDEO talked to me about the product development process as being like the classic diamond-shaped kite with a tail comprised of increasingly smaller diamonds. Interesting, so IDEO had a role in the Dumbbell Diamonds. Who's IDEO? They are the design consultancy that released this design thinking model in 2001. Their historical note, not as good. It says like, ooh, Viptapakanak and Zeitgeist, it's nothing. Right, Double Diamond is from the UK, design thinking from the US, those two countries the US and the UK, pretty individualistic. This is the Hofstadter Culture Compass, where we can see they score about 89 out of, or two, and 91 out of a possible 100. Is this problematic? Absolutely, we're just gonna use it anyhow. Uh, and if you are feeling cocky about being Australian, this is where we fit in. We're, we're a solid 90, so we're pretty individualistic too. Oh, sorry, oh, I've gotta go back. No, go forward. Right. So, individualistic cultures, going to talk about individuals. What field of knowledge deals with individuals? It is psychology. So, we're going to look at a very early invention in the history of psychology, which is the IQ test invented in 1905. Does anyone know what the original IQ test was for? Is anyone thinking it's for measuring intelligence? It's not! It's not! It's absolutely not! So, it was actually for help identifying kids who are at risk of falling behind at school. So, this guy, Albert Benet, he and his team, they assessed a huge number of kids to work out a bell curve of the kind of capacity they should have at different ages. Then they assessed individual children uh, to see where they sat on the bell curve. If the kids' results were too far from the middle, the kid got extra support. He wasn't really a quant guy. You can see him in the corner. He's really engaged. And he actually said the IQ test score 
was a, a simple, brutal number that can have only a deceptive precision, right? Doesn't like the score. 1914, war breaks out, America joins. Two million soldiers rock up. Oh my God, how are we going to access aptitude at that scale? This guy has a solution to that problem. His name is Yerkes, and he gets all the soldiers to take a newfangled IQ test. Uh, he really wants academia to take psychology seriously, which they don't because they don't have any data and science is supposed to have data. Uh, psychologists just say, ooh, opinions about human behavior. So he is trying to get that problem sorted out. Okay, so he gives the IQ test to the soldiers. Was that the intended use of the test? No. But was it an appropriate use of the test? No. But did it yield useful results? Absolutely not. And the whole thing was abandoned within a couple of years. Okay, so what's wrong with it? Well, partly it's the methods. So look at this photo. We see a guy filling in the test uh, on paper by himself. He doesn't even have a table. Uh, it's completely different from that one-on-one -on -one that we saw before. There's two tests, Army Alpha and Army Beta. Uh, one's for literate men, one is for illiterate men. Who wants to try a question, a literate person's question? Too bad, because you're going to do it. Okay, ready? This is this. I'm going to read the script, okay? Okay. Attention, look at four. When I say go, make a figure one in the space which is in the circle but not in the triangle or square, and also make a figure two in the space which is in the triangle and the circle but not in the square, go. Did you get it? None of you are officer class. Okay, you're all privates, right. Okay, user researchers, how are we feeling about the validity? Yeah, it's good, yeah? We're, no, it's terrible. Uh, this is the test for illiterate men who, or men who don't speak English. Okay, so you're supposed to draw in what's missing in 16. You're supposed to draw in like a tennis net. What's missing in 18? Oh, someone got it. Yeah, it's a gramophone. It's missing the bell. Yeah, but most of you didn't get that, right? Because you don't see gramophones all the time. Guess what? A lot of the immigrants and poor black men taking this test didn't know what a tennis net was either. So it's clearly, obviously, a test of cultural knowledge, not intelligence. Worth mentioning, a lot of these men had never held a pen before. They didn't know what a test was. So to quote biologist Stephen Jay Gould, uh, in short, most of the men must have ended up absolutely baffled or scared shitless. And I'm allowed to say that because it's a quote from a book. Okay. All right. So here's another one just for fun. Uh, I've actually been thinking a lot about the person who drew this. Um, no, because it wasn't Yerkes. It wasn't Yerkes. It was some unnamed commercial artist, you know, just a probably someone a bit like us. I mean, did they know the test wasn't going to work? That's, that's not uncommon that we get asked to do things that we know aren't, aren't going to work. Um, tell you what, we're going to do a little test here, right? I'll do it too. If you're able to do so, put your right hand up like this. Yes, thank you, everybody. Okay. So if, no, keep them up. So if you've ever been asked to do something 
at work in your design career that you thought was dodgy, leave your hand up. No hands have gone down. None that I can see, not one. Okay, let the record show, lots of hands. Right, enough of that, depressing. Let's go to part two. Uh, J.P. Uh, Guilford, I love him. During World War II, Guilford did a lot of creativity research with pilots. He already knew the Army IQ test had failed, so he's looking for an alternative. But how do you test creativity in a quant way? Uh, has anyone heard of the paperclip test? Okay, yeah, I've got some nods. So the test is you give someone a standard object and you see how many uses they can come up for, with for that object in a time frame. Does this test have a right answer? No, it has infinite right answers, but you can count them, okay? So Guilford is looking for what he calls the kind of intelligence that goes off in different directions, and he is going to call that kind of intelligence divergent thinking, which is the opposite of the ability to find a single right answer, which he is also going to name, and it will be called convergent thinking, which is what it was being measured by the IQ test. Look, it was relevant the whole time. Okay, so based on his findings, Guilford literally invents the whole field of creativity research. In 1956, he introduces this. It's the structure of the intellect model. As you can see, convergent and divergent thinking are integrated into this model. Uh, so what this shows us is that the path by which diverge, converge came to us as designers was not a design path. It was a, a scientific path, specifically psychology and more specifically personality research via IQ testing, which is to say the study of the individual. Yeah? Cool. All right. So, our creative problem-solving methods have individualistic roots. Next guy. Love this guy. This is Alex Osborne, the man who invented brainstorming in the 1950s. Now, he is an advertising executive. He's like full madman guy, okay? Uh, who knows what brainstorming is? <gasps> what is it? Is it sitting in a room coming up with ideas? Is that what it is? You're wrong again! I love this! Okay, so brainstorming is in fact a three-step process. The first step is the one we know, group of people, no wrong answers in a room. The second one is pausing. And the third one is coming back later to go through all those crazy ideas and work out which one works. So first you use your divergent thinking to come up with the ideas, but like in Guilford's, but then you use your convergent thinking to get your solution. Like a diamond, maybe? Yes? Okay. All right. Okay. So the brainstorming fad starts with Osborne's book, Applied Imagination, in 1953. Now, you might have noticed something weird here because brainstorming is a non-judgmental collaborative group process, which is a weird thing for like a hyper-American madman capitalist to have come up with, culturally speaking. Uh, but Osborne does explain in the book that it's not really collectivist stuff. It's just that um, being in groups makes people more competitive. America, yeah. Um, 
So starting from about now, the creative problem solving or CPS movement really kicks off. Uh, as an aside, that's not actually the only time non-judgment comes into the CPS movement. Uh, you know how, like, if you go to a counsellor or a psychologist or something, they just refuse to give you advice or, or tell you what they think you should do? Lots of nods. Okay, that's this guy's fault, all right? This is, yeah, this is Carl Rogers. Uh, he is the guy who came up with the idea that to experience true change, a person has to solve their own problems creatively. Yes, all connected. So, voila. Psychology, again, I love Rogers. Interesting thing about Rogers, he was raised in an extremely Christian household, like footloose, okay? Uh, yes, thank you, old people. Um, so, so as a young man, he goes on a trip to China with the YMCA, blows his mind. The trip gave him the creative space and imperative to come up with an idea so influential that most of us in this room have had direct experience with it. Diverge. Yeah. Okay. So, which is funny because if you check the preface to the 1963 edition of Applied Imagination, which I have done, it looks very much as though Osborne actually got his idea from India. Now, it really hurts me not to tell you about the days I spent chasing this down, but thanks to the help of some friends, I'm pretty confident that Prabhashana is an anglicization of the Sanskrit Pariprashna. Yeah, Any, anyone in the room? No, unbelievable. Okay, so Pariprashna is a word in Sanskrit re that refers to respectful questioning of a spiritual teacher. And in conclusion, I think Osborne got a lot of the idea of brainstorming from the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, please ask me about this. I know so much. Right. Which means that our creative problem-solving methods might have multicultural roots. <gasps> Surprise. Okay. Who knows what this is? It's Sputnik. Yes, if you said Sputnik, you are correct. So, uh kind of lost history, for most of the space race, the USSR was winning. By miles, we can see the first dog in space, the first dogs to come back from space, the first man in space, the first spacewalk. It's all USSR. It's not until 1969 that the USA even gets a run on the board. And it made me think, given that CPS is happening during the Cold War, could it be related? Oh, it is. It absolutely is. The very first example of brainstorming that Osborne gives in his book is actually from the Cold War. So he says, if you were Secretary of State about to go to Moscow, wouldn't you like to have a highly intelligent group of strategists do nothing but think up a hundred possible moves you might make while you were there? And then... If only one worthwhile suggestion came out of a whole year's work by such a group, it would be the cost would be but a penny compared to one atom bomb. Because we're still capitalist and we're still counting that money. Uh, again, Guildford, 1959, we are in a mortal struggle for the survival of our way of life in the world. We encounter challenges on all intellectual fronts, scientific and cultural, as well as economic and political. They are definitely thinking about this. Which means, 
our creative problem-solving methods are, have ideological roots. They're partly for solving problems, but they're also for proving that like, the individualistic capitalist way is better than the collectivist, communitarian USSR way, which at the time was kind of ambiguous. It is also true that our creative problem-solving methods are a response to threat. They are reactive. There's an outside threat, right? And the problem posed by that outside threat is survival, because it's the Cold War. Uh, step back. 1963, Osborne is a bit ticked off about misuse of his technique. This is in the intro. He says, too many have erroneously regarded group brainstorming as a complete problem-solving process, where it is only one of several phases of idea-finding, and only one of several phases... Idea-finding is only one of several phases of creative problem-solving. Interesting. Uh, you won't recognise Sidney Pons. You will, however, know his work, because in 1967, in the Creative Behaviour Guidebook, he will document the first how might we question. Not IDEO, Palms. Osborne dies in 66, but before he dies, he works with Palms on all the phases of creative problem solving. Unfortunately, Palms is not a marketing genius, so the Osborne Palms creative problem solving method never gets super famous, but would you like to see it? Okay. <gasps> what? Five-step process, diverge, converge. Remember this? <gasps> Same shape. <laughs> Remember this? Hate the hexagons, let's kill them. <gasps> oh my God, they match up. Empathize to fact-finding, define to problem-finding, ideate to idea-finding, prototype to solution-finding, and test to acceptance-finding. Voila! So... At the beginning, our design council person was talking about the kite-shaped process models from the 1960s. Well, there it is. So both the IDEO pro design thinking process and the double diamonds have the same root. It is the osborne Pan's creative problem-solving process, which draws from Osborne's brainstorming process, which draws from Guilford's diverge-converge model of creativity. Ta-da! Okay. Now... I honestly feel like that's a pretty good mic drop moment. Uh, you want to get a coffee now? I get it. But you might be wondering, well, what happened? Right? There were loads of these models. There was a whole movement, and they're all kind of gone now apart from those two. So what happened? Um, well, basically, they didn't work. Uh, for years, people tried to find the one true universal creative problem-solving method and it kept not working. One of the nails in the coffin came from this guy, design theorist slash urban planner Horst Rittel. In 1973, he defines the 10 features of wicked problems. Get your phones out, we'll see them. What's a wicked problem? Well, basically, it's one you can't solve using a standardised method. Uh, here's the list. Do take a photo. Pausing, though, to note number 10, which is the planner has no right to be wrong. I'll summarise the bold text. It is a principle of science that solutions to problems are only hypotheses offered for refutation. So in science, you can be wrong, 
you just have to own it when someone proves you wrong. But in planning and design, our solutions aren't for uncovering the truth, they're for actually changing the world in, in some way, hopefully for the better. Which means planners are liable for the consequences of the actions they generate. Now, I like this because it points out how annoying science is, right? Science people, they're doing problem solving all the time, they just don't own it, you know? It's like, ooh, just asking questions. So, <laughs> time for part three. Right, time to look at the water again. This time the water is data and the interpretation of data, which is to say statistics. Now, why talk about statistics and to talk about creative problem solving? Two reasons. First, it's another lost history. And second, data asks a lot of questions and it tries to solve a lot of questions, but with that dodge that's built into the science thing, that it's objective, that's just postulating a hypothesis, just saying. That means the questions and the solutions really avoid a lot of scrutiny. So let's scrutinize. Carl Gauss. Have you guys used, uh, you know, Gaussian blur? Right, well, that, this is the Gauss. Okay, so in 1809, Carl Gauss identifies the bell curve. Just a reminder, we're going to get into scientific racism almost immediately. Opt out if you would like to. Here it is. Here is the bell curve. It's a way of assessing probability. So, if everyone in this room had a coin and we all flipped our coin 100 times, some of us would get all heads, a very small number would get all tails, but most of us would get about a 50-50. And we can predict that very accurately on the bell curve, which means our statistical methods have roots in probability. Okay, Adolf Quetlet, I'm not pronouncing that right. Uh, 1850s, this guy's really into measuring people. He's measuring people's height, weight, nose length, and he realizes, oh my God, this maps onto the bell curve. Amazing. Quetlet quickly develops a belief that the average person is kind of perfect. Every increment away from or diverging from average is a move towards what he calls deformity and disease, which is the foundation idea of the BMI, which he invented. Huh. Right, so the bell curve exists. Measuring people against the bell curve exists. What's going to happen next? Charles Darwin. So we're going to get the origin of the species in 1859. And Darwin has this first cousin, Francis Galton. He is probably the most interesting person in this story. Unfortunately, he is also probably one of the worst, which sucks because he, he did cool stuff. Like, this is the guy who proved human fingerprints are unique. He created the first weather map. He was the first person to do twin studies. He's obsessed with measurement. Obsessed. So remember how Guilford took the ideas from his recent historical context, combined them, and invented the discipline of creativity research? Well, Galton's going to do something similar, but in 1883, he is going to invent eugenics. Uh, eugenics is the selective breeding of people. It's about selective breeding to increase the probability of desired traits, either by having some people breed more or having other people prevented from breeding. Now, 
I want to get this out of the way. It doesn't work, right? There are species that can be selectively bred. You can selectively breed dogs, but humans actually have a really small genome and you cannot selectively breed people. We're just the wrong kind of species. It doesn't work. All right, the eugenicists had many desi identified uh, desirable traits, the most important one of which was... It's going to be intelligence, you know, right? Okay. Galton will mentor a man called Pearson. Pearson's on the left, Galton's on the right. They will eventually be joined by a man called Fisher. These three men, Galton, Pearson and Fisher, are all polymaths. They work across agriculture, biology, forensics, geology, weather, you name it, they're in it. But they all have the same passion and their passion is eugenics. Now, I'm not using quotes from these men. You, you don't want to hear it. They're very pro-genocide. Uh, they're very pro-war. They're very pro-forced sterilization. Uh, and they believe in it deeply. They are, so they believe in eugenics. They're passionate about eugenics. They're also committed scientists. So how are they going to prove that eugenics is a good idea? They are going to invent modern statistics. If you pop it in Google, founder of modern statistics, you will get Ronald Fisher. If you scroll a little bit, we'll still be on the first page. The only other name that will pop up is Carl Pearson. These men believe passionately that statistics is completely objective. To quote Pearson, we believe there is no institution more capable of impartial statistical inquiry than the Galton Laboratory. We believe firmly that we have no political, no religious and no social prejudices. Uh, that was a note to go with his journal findings that Jewish children are less intelligent than other children. He got that data doing IQ tests on traumatised little kids that had just arrived in England after escaping from pogroms totally impartial. Uh, as an aside, by the way, Binet didn't actually do the first IQ tests, Galton did, but he kept getting these results that said poor people were as smart as uh, rich people, so he figured the method was wrong. Uh, right, so our statistical methods literally have racist roots. Proving that white people are better than other people is what modern statistics was originally for. What does that mean, modern statistics? Pfft, look, it's mostly bell curves, honestly. Uh, you've heard of the correlation coefficient invented by Pearson. I won't explain it. This is his data. It's bell curves. You might know the idea of statistically significant. They made that one up too. What is it? It's the measurement between bell curves. It's, it's all bell curves, okay? Uh, here's a bell curve. This is Galton's chart for representing genetic worth across social classes. Paupers and criminals at one end, and because we're still capitalists, independent professionals and large employers at the other. So in eugenics, uh, genes are everything, upbringing is nothing. If you're poor, it's because your genes are bad. If you're rich, it's because your genes are good. Good. That means American society is fair and inequality is natural. It's objective. It's science. And people are really into this. Okay? Uh, especially rich people and especially, extra especially rich Americans. 
almost all of whom were white. So this photo is from 1914. It's the first ever race betterment contest conference. The guy standing up is Harvey Kellogg, as in the cornflakes. Uh, all these people are doctors, philanthropists, academics, politicians. Uh, they're tech bros. Right? No, they, they, they are, okay? You are basically looking at South by Southwest. This is like a TED conference. It's not even a TEDx. It's like a proper TED, yeah? Um, so <laughs> Winston Churchill is into it. Teddy Roosevelt is into it. Mari Stopes, the contraception lady, total eugenicist, very into it. Books about eugenics are bestsellers. It's everywhere. It's science. This is your five-minute warning, by the way. So, our statistical methods have ideological roots. But, much like we saw with the CPS, they are also a response to threat. Difference being, this time it, the threat is not an outside enemy, it is diversity in society itself, of any kind. So we are targeting uh, class, race, gender, sexuality, disability. It's all in there. Okay. Every increment away, every increment that diverges uh, from the assumed perfection of a rich, white, wholly able-bodied man is an increment towards deformity and disease. This isn't actually the wildest part, okay? Here's the wildest part. Most of the data that went into making eugenics popular was terrible, right? So most was incompetent, but some was outright fraud. Now, this is obviously a doctored photo, right? The little demon child with, with the messed up... No, it is, okay? Um, this is a photo, a doctored photo of children from the Kalakak family. Does anyone speak ancient Greek? Okay, no, it's a fraud name that is Kalos Kak, which is beauty shit. So they're, they're the beauty shit family. Um, completely fabricated, never existed. Best-selling books about this fabricated family. Uh, Cyril Burt proved through twin studies that intelligence was definitely inherited and environment had nothing to do with it. Uh, Totally fabricated, ended up shaping a large part of the American education system. His twin studies just literally did not exist. The interpretations were terrible. So we know how bad the data collection for Army Alpha was, right? Okay, we saw that. Uh, the interpretations were worse. The data showed clearly that black people in the North, where they went to school, did better on the test than black people in the South. How do we explain that genetically? Do you know what they decided? They decided that it was evidence that, like, because life was better for black people in the north, all the smart black people moved there. As, yes, I'm not making this up. Like, this, these are our objectives. Like, ooh, no bias on me, people. Okay. All right. So, you know who else is a eugenicist? Yeah. Yerkes. Yerkes is a eugenicist. Uh, the guy who wants to use cool new statistical methods to prove that psychology is a real science because data. You know what else he wants to prove using data? Maybe data from a sample size of 1.7 million soldiers? Yep. He wants to prove white people are better. But as we know, fortunately, the army knew the results were terrible 
and the damage was limited, right? Because the army abandoned the test. Didn't kill the data. Uh, in 1923, a man called Carl Brigham will publish a book called A Study of American Intelligence. The book uses modern statistical methods, the bell curve ones, on the data sets from the Army Alpha and Army Beta test, but it tidies them up, hides all that bad methodology, makes them very easy to understand. On this page, we see a bar chart showing the intelligence of different racial groups. Top of the chart is England, bottom of the chart is Negro Draft. The book is a hit with American elites, especially policymakers who love nice, clean data. Brigham's book was not the only driver of the American Immigration Act of 1924, but it was a very big one. That act ended Asian immigration to the United States. It dramatically reduced the number of immigrants from nations where the data showed people to be inferior. During the 1930s, eugenicist policies and laws became commonplace in America. Forced sterilizations of people deemed unfit to breed were legal and common in 30 American states. Laws against interracial marriage hardened and eugenics-based oppression became very normal. The eugenic policies, laws, and practices of America were a source of ideological and practical inspiration to the German Nazi movement as they commenced the forced sterilizations, work restrictions, deportations, and murders that we now refer to as the Holocaust. The connection between American and German eugenicists is very well documented. Less well-documented is the link between the Holocaust and statistics itself. I will now read to you Carl Pearson's words on this topic. In Germany, a vast experiment is at hand, and some of you may live to see its results. If it fails, it will not be for want of enthusiasm, but rather because the Germans are only just starting the study of mathematical statistics in the modern sense. When I asked before who had been asked to do something dodgy in their design career, every hand went up. What did you do? When you were told to do something that you knew might mislead people or might harm people, when you did research that you knew was methodologically flawed, when you were asked to use your design skills to create a glossy deck out of research that you knew was bad, what did you do? Did you refuse? Did you escalate? 
Or did you figure that the client had to be kept happy? The PM needed pacifying, couldn't make too much of a difference. How would you know what difference your work will make? Double diamond again, I can see the how might we in that. Where is the should we? Can, can you point to it? Is it there? Erin told us yesterday that there are no right answers to wrong questions. Which step in design thinking is the step where we ask if the question is wrong? Everything, everything we do is cultural. If you are educated and white as I am, there are eugenic assumptions that are still in our shared culture, still embedded in our work practices and still embedded in us. In the history that we've looked at today, the more people have insisted that their method is objective, universal, beyond culture, the worse their results have been, the more fraudulent their practice has been and the more harm they have done. There is no purely objective methodology. There is no universal methodology. There never was. Pretending otherwise is wrong. Supporting practices that pretend otherwise is wrong. And when your work can hurt people, as ours can, you do not have the right to be wrong. Thank you. I think we have time for just one question. So if you're willing to take Absolutely. A cool. Okay. Who it's okay. Like we can laugh again now. It's over. It's fine. Who, okay. Who would like to ask a okay. question? So mm -hmm. over on the left there, right at the front. Cool. And we'll just take this one and then we'll mm -hmm. have a break. Hi, my name's Stephen. Um, thanks for like, like amazing um, <laughs> presentation. I'm, I just, one of the things that, like with the shapes of diamonds and hexagons, yep. there wasn't many circles, and that's one of the like the go-to, maybe method in design of that sort of iterative. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. What, what was the what was the question? So there's the question is there was diamonds, hexagons, but no circles, <laughs> and it's one of the go-to. Creative solving things of, you know, plan, act, do, observe, reflect. That is, I don't know, like. Do you have a question? So the question is, why, like, where does the, the iterative approach fit within the creative problem solving? It fits in the 15 minutes I didn't have. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Thank you very much. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.